we feel anxious because we feel powerless and we feel powerless because in effect we are powerless because we live in a system that devalues human life. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Associate Professor Nikki Falkoff, who is a cultural studies scholar based in the Media Studies Department at Wits University, Johannesburg, South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Her scholarship has focused over the past few years on Satanism and family murder in late apartheid South Africa, imagining the end of whiteness moral panics, whiteness and risk in South Africa, more recent work of edited collection, Anxious Joburg, The Inner Lives of a Global South City. We're really excited to have you on the show, Nikki, because I think you might be one of the first scholars we've had on the main episode that is based in South Africa. We've had a couple of episodes on our spotlight series I think but not actually mm-hmm. on the main episode so we're really excited to learn more about your work and yeah how it relates to some of the things we've been talking about on the show mm-hmm. so thank you for coming on Nikki Nikki could you introduce the listeners to yourself and your kind of trajectory into scholarship so we can sort of understand a bit where you're coming from yeah so I had a slightly I mean I look I look on paper now like I have a kind of very you know traditional academic career I've been very lucky to have a permanent you know the equivalent of tenure job let's not kid it's it's rare these days but I did have a slightly kind of odd start I did I'm from Johannesburg originally I moved to Cape Town to go to university did an undergraduate degree and a fourth year honours degree which is something we have in South Africa and I was going to be an actress I had all sorts of ideas and then that didn't really work and then I moved to London when I was in my early 20s because There was this um, scheme that they had called the Working Holiday Visa, where as a Commonwealth citizen, you could apply and you could, it didn't cost very much, (laughs) you could fly over to the UK and you could go get yourself a job as a waitress or something else and you could work there for a couple of years and that's what I did and it seems completely insane now (laughs) to think about how easy it was for me to get into England, to get into Britain in like 2000. Um, obviously, you know, part of that was the fact that I was a nice white girl because there was a Zimbabwean woman on the plane with me who got turned back, which is another conversation. Uh, yeah, so I moved to London, spent some time working as a journalist, um, wasn't really sure what to do with myself and stumbled into some funding for a master's that was suggested by a, an old lecturer at the University of Cape Town. So I went and did a master's at Sussex, really, really liked it, but it was great but had no interest in being an academic because it seemed quite um, quite politically unaware, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coming from South Africa where, you know, questions of race are in your face all the time and going off to university in the UK, I was a bit like people kind of treated me like I was the crazed radical in the class because I was going on about this stuff all the time. Mm. And I did eventually end up doing a PhD 
uh, partly because I didn't know what else to do and I got some funding. Mm. And it was, I had an incredible experience, but again, there was, um, there was me and there was an American guy called Seth Rodney, who's Jamaican American, who was working on race-based questions as well. And we were the only people in my PhD program, which was a wonderful PhD program, but we were the only people who were really doing anything to do with issues of race, issues of class, issues of politics. And it was a, a strange experience because it made me feel as though academia was almost something for dilettantes. Like it was a fun thing that you did because mm -hmm. it was fun. It took me quite a while of being part of this PhD program and meeting a lot of other scholars from other places and connecting more with people from South Africa to realize that, you know, there is actually an ethical charge to scholarship. I mean, I was in an interdisciplinary program and a lot of the people that I was encountering were working on performing arts. So their, their motivations were completely different and completely valid, but for me, my introduction to British academia was just very kind of, I was very surprised. But what was that like as a white woman who had grown up in apartheid South Africa, coming to the quote unquote mother country or coming to Britain and seeing how race is kind of, it's not just the elephant in the room, it's something that is considered, at times, is considered as in insignificant within the mainstream, or we try to hide away from it. Like, what was that like? It was very strange, because I went to the University of Cape Town, which at that stage, and again now, was was pretty radical. And I went there right after 95, or uh, yeah, I went there in 96, I think. So things were changing dramatically. A lot of the friends that I made then, who are some of the most old friends that, that I have now, were some of the first non-white people that I ever got really personally close to. And I mean, I say non-white because I don't want to conflate a whole lot of different complex identities. But for me, as an, as an 18, 19 year old girl, the thing that set everyone apart was the fact that they weren't white because the only people I'd met before who weren't white were people who were working for my parents. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, I come from this university where it felt, at least the humanities faculty felt a bit like a hotbed of radicalism and people were so hyper aware of this stuff. And then I came to the UK and met loads of people who were very politically aware, right? I made friends with people who were, you know, going and filming G7 protests and doing environmental protests and, you know, getting kettled by the police in central London. Oh, those were fun days. I'm lying. They were not fun. They were awful. I remember a pregnant lady weeing in a helmet. Um, there was a lot, there was a lot of activism going on, but none of it ever seemed to cross the boundaries of this question of race which I found really strange. And I lived in, in Hackney at first, which was very mixed. And then I moved to Brighton, which of course is like, is the most right on town ever, but it was also very, very white. And the few black friends I did make in Brighton found it, and still find it quite a difficult place to be because it is so self-righteously right on and liberal while also being completely blind to issues of, of race. But I mean, another thing that really kind of baked my noodle when I got to the UK, because in, you know, in South Africa, I kind of walk around in this, uh, I guess this this protective shield of whiteness, which obviously is you know personally difficult for me, but I have to acknowledge what it does. Because I'm Jewish and I have extremely curly hair and quite I, I don't look British. Nice. A lot of people in the UK read me as mixed race. Mm. So I suddenly had this strange experience of walking around in places having random strangers touch my hair or go. Oh, you're very exotic. Where are you from? And I'd say <laughs> South Africa. And they go, oh, that explains everything. <laughs> I had this kind of 
you know, really mixed up dual experience where on the one hand, everyone was walking around with their heads in the sand, refusing to even talk about race while talking about every other political issue on the table. But on the other hand, because I read as not white, my racial identity was open to scrutiny and discussion by absolutely any random person that I walked past. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, it was odd. When I was reading some of the book, talking about London reverberates mm-hmm. into, into Johannesburg, but equally that doesn't come back the other direction. So the Imperial Centre speaks what happens at the margins do you think that's what happens with race nothing spoken about race because it's in the margins and it doesn't really kind of come back i mean to some extent i think yes i think you can make that argument obviously if you think about the us which is always the country that gets pinned to south africa because the other country with the big issues about race we couldn't say that race is on the margins there but also again that's quite i think that's quite recent I think until recently, even though there has been so much conversation about race in the US, it's been happening on the margins of that country. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been a similar situation in Britain where there's been black activism for a really long time. And there've been black spaces and black political work for a really long time, but none of it's made its way into louder, kind of more audible conversation until, I don't know, maybe the last 10 years or so. You know, it's always been seen as, as, as a niche area in the same way that until quite recently, violence against women was seen as a woman's issue. So, yeah, I think, I mean, there is something to be said about the center creeping into the metropole and vice versa, but there's also a lot of resistance to that in South Africa now, where people are trying very hard to go, we don't care what's happening over there. Mm-hmm. We only care what's happening here. It's not really working. Just to follow up from what Tisa said about the book, I mean, I, I think when, we, when we've spoken in our pre-chats before recording um, this episode um, about how you come to, come to write the book, you were talking about or edit 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 the book mm. or put it together you spoke about the process of coming back to Johannesburg and leaving the suburbs I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that and then how that then informed your imagination mm. for the book and then the and then we can maybe talk a bit about anxieties well this I mean this has been a long ongoing process of kind of coming to terms with a lot of stuff for me. And I mean, you know, (laughs) since the seventies, feminists have been saying the personal is political. And, you know, we all get slightly annoyed at these hackneyed phrases, but they're they're hackneyed for a reason. And my, my personal history as an academic, as a scholar, I guess, has been very much tied up with Johannesburg and with my own whiteness. So I initially, when I started doing my PhD, I was planning to work on something completely different. And then the funding that I had was, was tied to me doing work on South Africa and I couldn't think of anything to do. And I ended up finding this really bizarre project around the moral panic around Satanism in the 1980s towards the end of apartheid and, you know, talking about panics around family murder and the process of going through that for someone who had left South Africa behind and kind of, you know, reinvented themselves with this mid range, random, non-specifically vague kind of Commonwealth Anglo accent. So people didn't really know where I was from. The process of going, no, I am actually a white South African. And I have to, I may have gotten rid of my accent, but I still sit with all of that. It's not going anywhere. That, that was part of writing my PhD. And then I had to move back to South Africa because, you know, we all know what it's like trying to get an academic job in the UK if you don't have two books and a professor as a parent. <laughs> so... I felt myself a postdoc in Johannesburg. I had never wanted to come back, but I thought I would, you know, pop back for a year, spend some time with my parents. It would make me look exotic when I went back on the international job market. I don't know, I can't, I can't remember quite how I was phrasing this to myself, but it was something like that. Like I can trade on my interest in global South history. And it was only when I came back here, having not lived in this city since I was a teenager, 
that I realized how much it's changed and what it is now. And the fact that it's something very, very different to what I had known before. I had known it as being this sad, dead, constrained, cloistered place where you couldn't go anywhere and you couldn't do anything. And I came back to this thriving, vibing, intercontinental African metropolis that was just full of migrants and full of music and full of life. I mean, now at the moment in 2021, I've kind of come round again and, and come round to another full circle in, in Johannesburg because the city at the moment is collapsing. We are going through, at, right now we're experiencing a really, really bad third wave of COVID. The hospitals are full. The main hospital is not, the main the Johannesburg General Hospital is not open because there was a fire there two months ago and part of it was fire damaged and it hasn't been repaired yet. And the reason it was fire damaged is that we have no fire hydrants in the main hospital of the city. So when the fire broke out, it was just left to rain. It was ravaged the entire building. We've had, we're having rolling blackouts. We're having people going without water for days on end, potholes. There all the traffic lights are going. It's really, really bad. It's like a degree of infrastructural collapse that no one thought was possible in a city this big and this rich. Mm -hmm. So the way I'm sitting, where I'm sitting right now is that the city that I've kind of reinvested all of my affect in that I'm really, really, really attached to that I write about, that I think about, it looks like it feels like it's crumbling around me. And it's a very interesting position to be in because, of course, you know, I am sufficiently privileged that if necessary, I could go somewhere else. But I know a hell of a lot of people who aren't. And I'm having to constantly interrogate my own my own feelings about this, when I, when I start to panic and I start to get anxious about Joburg and go, maybe we should go, maybe we should leave, maybe we should move. And to keep reminding myself that very few people have that option, that this is most South Africans, this is what they're stuck with. They're stuck with this level of collapse. So, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting city for, I think, reading urban trends around the world, but it's also a really interesting city for reading the way in which people's emotional lives are affected by what happens in a city the city's crumbling but is is that what makes the city is it the actual physicality of it that makes it the city or is it the people that make the city right this is why this is why things are so difficult right now because no in a city like i mean perhaps in some cities the infrastructure is significant joburg doesn't have great architecture it's got some nice buildings it doesn't have great <laughs> architecture it doesn't have a seafront it doesn't have much it is it is a place that is completely made by people but the crumbling of the infrastructure means that mobility has become even more difficult. So there, there's fewer, there are fewer things that people can do. There are fewer ways to gather. And then on top of that, ha that happening within a pandemic when the social life of the city has been absolutely decimated and all of the joy that used to spring up in unexpected corners, despite everything else that was happening, has suddenly been violently circumscribed. We are on, on curfew from 10 p.m. There's very little to do. So now the neighborhood that I live in that used to be incredibly vibrant and full, like racially diverse, diverse in terms of age, there were loads of foreigners. It was a place where people gathered. So even when things were, even when things felt like they were collapsing, people would gather in this place and together they would drink and they would laugh about it and they mm. would cope with it. Yeah. Those mechanisms of collective coping, those mechanisms of, of avoiding despair have been so shut down by COVID that it, it feels like a perfect storm of stuff. I mean, it will that will come back mm -hmm. if we ever get through this wave. But it is, it's very, very anxiety provoking. It's like this city is made by its social worlds, which suddenly don't seem to exist. Using the framework of, of anxiety, 
is that how people are mapping and navigating their way around that city given covid and mm -hmm. the idea of infection does how does that map onto race gender and navigating through a city like Johannesburg that that mapping is extremely complex i think i mean i in terms of gender um well they're always they're always meshed it's always intersectional in a city like mm -hmm. this i think everywhere but Partic black women particularly, and women of colour particularly, I think experience the streets of Johannesburg as extremely high-risk places. I'm sure you you know mm. that our rates of gender-based violence are just off the scale. But also this year, and towards the end of last year, we've had this sudden spike in, in murders and hate crimes perpetuated against queer people. So, you know, this, we had this a few years ago and then it stopped. You, you're hearing every week about a lesbian being murdered, a queer man being burnt to death in the boot of his car. Horrific, horrific mm -hmm. stories. So people who have kind of non-hegemonic yeah. identities or non-hegemonic bodies have always found Joburg an anxious and dangerous place to be in. And I think that that is now, you know, exacerbated in, in significant ways because there's, there's even fewer people on the streets. There are even fewer taxis driving you around. And taxi drivers, you know, taxis in the city are such a complex question as well. They're, they're these kind of strange public-private media like forms of transport that are very, very poorly regulated and often very dangerous, but there is nothing else. There's no other way to get around. So people are getting on these small minibus taxis and yeah, they're wearing their masks, but they're sitting in very close proximity to a load of other people who may not be wearing their masks and the driver may not be wearing his. And you cannot tell the driver of a minibus taxi, put your mask on because he will kick you out. <laughs> so people are taking risks to get across the city like really dramatic risks. And of course, you know, there hasn't been any kind of um, furlough scheme or anything like that in South Africa. There hasn't been any scheme at all to support people who don't have the money to just isolate. So mm -hmm. people are working. It's, it's People are working, they're traveling, they're crossing huge distances. Tied into all of this is the apartheid era spatiality of Joburg, where mm -hmm. the suburbs where I live and the banking districts in the north and lots and the malls, lots of the wealthiest areas where the most employment is found, are very, very far from the townships. So people who are poor are traveling two plus hours on two plus taxis every morning to get to work, crammed in with however many other people from five o'clock in the morning so that they can get to work on time. And, you know, you add to all of that the kind of combination of vaccine hesitancy, which a lot of people have, the absolute terror of COVID and the fear of starving. It's a it's a difficult time, I think. It sounds crazy, right? Well, yeah, but you know what? I'm fine. I'm sitting here in my two-bedroom suburban house with my own car. I'm okay. In the book, you talk about, is it the part-time prawn? Yes. <laughs> it's my spirit animal. Can you explain what it is? Okay. Part-time prawn is a local kind of slangy name for a particular insect um, that I grew up thinking was a mutated cockroach because this is what we were all taught. But doing the research for this chapter, I then found out that it is an, an African tusked king cricket. So it's an enormous cricket that is extremely scary. It's kind of pink and gray. It spits out a foul smelling fecal liquid if you if you frighten it. It can jump incredibly high. They can jump up to your face. They're very, very, very hard to kill. <laughs> so you can spend hours spraying them with bug spray and they'll still be inside the bin you've put on their head going dong, 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 dong. And they like warm, dark places like children's shoes. Oh. Yeah. So many people I know have a story of accidentally squishing one of these things. And, you know, they were kind of this emblematic B 
beastie, this horrifying beastie of my childhood in Joburg. Yeah, <laughs> just looking at a picture of them on a phone and it, they are pretty nasty. But yes, I mean, I've, I've always been really fascinated by them because I'm terrified of them. They really genuinely are scary, but also because they've, they play such a big part in the kind of collective imagination of white Johannesburg, or at least they did. They've, they've started to vanish off now. So there's loads of people who are more recent migrants to the city who've never seen one. Um, which is kind of sad. So how does it connect to the white, white suburban South Africa, the inset? Well, firstly, because, you know, there is this kind of, on, well, there was when they were more prolific, there was this kind of ongoing fear. It's one of those things that as a kid you are scared of. You're scared of part-time problems. Your parents are scared of them. They're gross and disgusting. Um, they appear in lots of weird bits of popular culture. So in the in the chapter I was talking about a really well-known piece of physical theatre performed by an amazing actor called Andrew Buckland. Um, they are what the prawns in District 9 are based on. This is what, this is what it reminded me of. I was like, District yeah. 9 vibe! There's definitely a little kind of in-jokey nod to Joburg there. There's a music video by the Antwerp. They crop up in lots of stuff. I mean, for me, the reason that they're so usefully significant as a kind of a metaphor is that White suburbanites in Johannesburg, the, the white suburbs in Joburg were specifically built to get wealthy people away from the scent and dirt and effluent and prostitution and death and murder of the mines, right? So people came here, started mining the biggest gold seam in the world, which is still the biggest gold seam in the world, and started making un, unimaginable untold fortunes. But the consequences of that is, you know, a lot of dirt and a lot of muck and a lot of human despair and a lot of bodies. So the people who made the money, instead of going down the mines, who were inevitably white and mostly British or Jewish, took that money and moved off to the ridges of Johannesburg, which is a very hilly city, and started building mansions and then later on built smaller suburbs like the ones where I live. And it's always seemed really peculiar to me that those of us who grow up in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg, known as the largest man-made forest in the world, because they, the British, when they, when they colonized this area, they forested it so intensely so it would look pretty and not like the African plain that it is. You know, we've basically, this entire city has been constructed on a lie that it's a place different to the place it really is. And we could say that about a lot of cities, obviously, but because Joburg is so new, the lie is really, really visible. And I, when I started thinking about why part-time prawns were so effectively powerful, it's not just that they're scary bugs. There's also something about the fact that they bring the outside inside. They make it very, very clear that, you know, you can build all the mansions and have all the pressed ceilings and all the stained glass that you like. You are not in the English countryside. You are not in some sanitized, perfect fantasy of suburbia in which you can pretend that Africa is something that you get in your four by four and go and look at when you're on safari. It's there's something about them that just really kind of in a, you know, Christavery sort of sense. I feel like it unsettles the boundaries of the suburbs. It's so sick. Uh, it's such a good metaphor. Like it's yeah. just like a- But I think that's a metaphor. And they're so like, gross. <laughs> but it's like, it's like for nature though, right? Yeah. So, so for example, like for me, it's like insects. Yeah. Insects will always come, for, doesn't matter what you do, they will always find them inside. Doesn't matter how yeah. clean your house is, you'd always find it. But I think the question then is, when I when you talk about anxiety, the first thing I flip to is control. People mm -hmm. will seek to control your environment to avoid or alleviate that anxiety when they build um, fortresses of the suburbs. 
because of the fear of crime, you all kind of build up a, a fortress of war, but crime will always still get inside. Like, so the example of Oscar, yeah. Oscar Pretorius killing his, um, his girlfriend, but blaming the people who were outside, outside, the outside the fortress. I think that's part of modernity, the idea of trying to control your environment. I think the critical theorists speak about this, the idea of controlling nature. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, again, this brings me back to why I think Joburg is so interesting because the, mm -hmm. none of this stuff is stuff that's exclusive to South Africa mm -hmm. and none of this stuff is stuff that's exclusive to this city by any means, but it's so mm -hmm. visible in this city. You walk around the suburbs, you walk around the suburb where I live and you know there are, there are walls that are kind of head high around every house. Many of them have big sliding gates and a lot of them have um, electric fences on top. You go into the wealthier suburbs and there are little guard houses where a guy sits all day and all night, you know, with a with a button where he can call the armed response. You go into townships and people have low walls with barbed wire on top and guard dogs. There is a way in which that, you know, what Martin Murray calls the fortress architecture of Johannesburg, it makes that anxiety about control so blatantly visible. Because in other places, people have security. But in this place, what we want to do with the security is show people that we have it. It is, it is performative militarization. It's really interesting. It reminds me of, it's kind of like a manifestation or a, a profileration of, um, of denial, colonial denial. Or not, not just denial, but a kind of reinstatement of like, mm. we are here and we're staying here. But almost like people kind of not willing to think reparatively about modern society as well and like how how we all came to be where we are and like building up fortresses around where you live like if we roll that back roll back roll back through history like why is it that you think you need to do that and that's because you're on stolen land can we roll it back to as binary as that or is it more complicated than that Nikki? look i mean we're only talking about a very specific subset of joburg residents here we're basically talking about white suburbanites but i think you're absolutely and we can be absolutely spot on it's so many other parts of the, of the world yeah exactly that but as you say like in joburg you get this visceral example yeah. very physical example of what what's happening there so I, I did, I wrote a paper a few years ago about so-called um, garden cottages in Joburg, having gone to see a few because I needed somewhere to live. I was like, why are there all these garden cottages? Everyone's got a garden cottage. How <laughs> weird. I'm sure this wasn't a thing when I was a kid. And then I went to look at some of these things and I realized that these are now maids. These were old maids rooms. Oh. During the Group Areas Act, uh, black women were not technically allowed to live in Johannesburg. They were supposed to live in their quote unquote homelands, which the government basically made up. But if you had an employer, you were allowed to live on the employer's property, but you had to have your passbook and the employer had to vouch for you, yada, yada. So people were building these kind of really shitty, small, badly constructed rooms out the back of their houses with, you know, maybe a hot plate. And this woman would live there, maybe with her kids. Maybe she'd sneak family members in and out. There's an amazing book by a scholar called Rebecca Ginsburg about this. And then in the post-apartheid dispensation, suddenly, you know, women who did domestic labor could live in a township with their kids and their families and they could have a life. And yes, they traveled a long time every morning, but they didn't have to live on the property anymore. So people in the suburbs found themselves with all these spaces. They started whitewashing them, putting in more windows, <laughs> making them pretty and renting them out to people like me, to students or postgrads or putting them on Airbnb. And when I was doing this, when I was doing this paper, I mean, the thing that I kept coming back to was the fact that the suburbs allegedly have democratized. This is no longer a, a whites only space, but now people have all these other strategies that they use for determining who can come in and who can come out. 
So you're allowed in if you are wealthy enough to buy a house, but if you're doing something like renting, uh, renting a garden cottage, the adverts that you see on sites like Gumtree will be thoroughly racially coded and nationally coded all the time. People ask for South African IDs because they don't like foreigners. They don't want a Nigerian, God forbid, because everyone in South Africa knows Nigerians are the source of oil problems. It's quite intense. Yeah, you're, <laughs> I think in our, in our conversations that we've had, you were talking to us about... Um, the heightened issues of xenophobia and also mm. that increase in, in during COVID as well and what that's been like sort of navigating like in everyday life like conversations and racialized yeah. boundaries I mean that's that's I I personally have been encountering a lot less of that sort of thing because as I say I live in the burbs and you know none of us have really been seeing people very much but just the other day there, there was a whole lot there was footage of a township somewhere where a whole lot of guys had climbed on top of a small, a small kind of spaza shop, tuck shop owned by a Somali guy, and they'd ripped the entire, fa- ripped the entire structure to shreds and stolen all the stock and called it like, you know, liberating, liberating things because you don't want foreigners in your neighborhood selling stuff. And we're still having constant xenophobic attacks. There's been a lot of, there's, there's been a lack of clarity about whether non-South Africans can get vaccinated. There have been troubles with non-South Africans accessing the National Unemployment Insurance Fund. There's been all this stuff about the kind of social and institutional xenophobia of this country that have made it very, very difficult for African nationals living in South Africa to survive during COVID. And of course, our borders were closed for so long that many people didn't have a choice to go Mm. home. So there's been a lot of starvation. But would you say this kind of touches on some of the stuff like uh, that kind of Mary Douglas puts forward in her book, Pure in Danger? So there's a, almost like a drive to kind of keep what's taboo or what's out, to keep it on the outside and maintain what we, what some people see as purity to maintain that Thank kind of. Thank you so much for bringing her up. <laughs> I love that book so much. <laughs> it's a good book. It's a good book. It's a, good book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great book. And I think it just, mm. just like explains so much of how we, humans process things. And I mean, yeah, I'm just going to keep citing myself. So one of, the <laughs> one of the things that one of the chapters in my new book, which I just got under contract from Manchester University Press. Thanks, guys. I love them. Um, thank <laughs> you. It was a long ride. Wow. But one of those one of those chapters is about the um, the neighbor the Facebook group in the neighborhood where I live. Oh my and god! And how people do this kind of Facebook groups in the suburbs. I keep, <laughs> I keep saying to people, listen, this is this is what we need to be looking at. If you want to see looking at the mainstream yeah. of far the far right, if you want to see it like how everyday people are engaging with horrific horrific um, ways so of bad. talking about people. <laughs> Get on these local suburban Facebook groups. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's like, you know, you talk about Mary Douglas, you talk about the way people in those groups speak about other humans as matter out of place. Mm-hmm. Like they talk the way that people talk about homeless people, like, oh, they should be helped, but not here. I'm very sorry for this situation, but they don't belong here. There's this constant reiteration of who counts as human and who counts as other types of matter that don't belong. And that defines them as dirt. And also, like, the other thing you get is, like, a promotion of kind of vigilantism as well. And this is, like, a multi-class thing. Like, these are not, it's not, like, people that are more likely to sort of get in scraps of each other, like, encouraging this. These are, like, your wealthy suburbanites that are, like, well, we need to get rid of these these people, these this other matter 
um, as yeah. you say. Yeah, oh, yeah, couldn't agree so with If you. the government won't do it, they won't do it. We can't trust them to do it. They don't care. So we have these, like, for example, these Facebook groups where people yeah. police each other. So in these in these spaces, is it anxiety that's driving people or is it fear? Because from like in reading in your book, there's a distinction between anxiety is, hasn't got the object. Fear is the object. Mm. You can see thing. You can see. So these people, so when people are talking about homeless people, they can see homeless people and it's the fear that you could end up like that. They can, you can quantify that. So is there, is it fear? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think in the in the Joburg case, there's mm-hmm. there is there is like straight up fear mm-hmm. because people will be, I am afraid of car guards, which is mm-hmm. a, a kind of type of informal activity here. I'm afraid of car guards or homeless people because they do crime. And mm-hmm. as a white person, I am exceptionally vulnerable to crime, which is, mm-hmm. you know, not true. Um, so there is definitely there is definitely a straight up element of fear. But for me, what's more interesting than that mm-hmm. is the kind of more generalized anxiety about what does it mean for me to be a person who lives in an area where people like this might be. Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of way in which the incursion of these people who are defined as dirt, um, I think makes people feel very anxious about their own status. There's, yeah, there's a lot of status anxiety attached to it. There's a lot of anxiety about foreigners and others. And those things are not as straightforward as I see a homeless person, he makes me afraid. It's it's something to do with kind of larger concerns about more nebulous issues like the collapse of society or the devaluation of whiteness, which I think is a huge source of anxiety for a lot of white South Africans. The idea, and you know, people don't say this, but I think there is this kind of pervasive feeling that being white used to mean something, and now it now it's that they're ruining that. Yeah, I I. I... I, I agree. That's that's where we're at right now. That I, is where we're at. I, I think it ties into that kind of Hobbesian argument where whiteness has been linked to the, like civilization and and anything beyond that is the state of nature, barbarism. So they see um, I don't know when, when immigrants coming over the idea that you're going to turn this into that the kind of a third world state. And this is so. This is kind of the arguments that. Um, the leader of the far right, not far right, the National Front in the 1970s, John Tyndale, would you say? He'd say that like, yeah. a, a white European who can make a civilization, a black man, if you left him in the island, it would be pretty much the same. He'd revert, he'd yeah. just be like a, a, stone, a caveman, basically. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. And, and Nikki, yeah. just to follow on from Tiso's point, I know in um, previous conversations that we've had, I wonder if I get you to speak to this, just talking a bit about um, whiteness, but also talking a bit about. Um, South Africa and one of the things you sort of was teaching us about before was how South Africa becomes a proxy for um for a a binarized understanding of when whiteness goes wrong or when white supremacy goes wrong even though there are so many variations um what happens of apartheid across the globe but like um, South Africa gets exceptionalized or well that's when it goes too far like you've actually you've actually drawn lines on what who's allowed where mm. we have other manifestations of it it's like one of the things that you kind of were complicating was how we need to talk about how whiteness functioned to facilitate apartheid but also how it gets used as a mask for other violences of white supremacy that are harder to pin down and mm. describe yeah no, totally. I mean, there, I think there was this kind of, as you say, there was this global sense that um, apartheid was just beyond the pale, just too, too, too far, too visible. Yeah, that's what you said. That's what you said. Oh, they went too far. 
it's like you can do it but if everyone else can see you doing it then everyone there's a there's a kind of a moral imperative for everyone else to go all the other white people go oh no this is bad this is very bad <laughs> but yeah i mean there is this way in which so th- there's a way in which kind of apartheid south africa was exceptionalized as the absolute worst kind of possible whiteness and all the other abuses perpetrated in the name of whiteness whether in majority white countries or in more mixed countries like brazil are, are much more easily overlooked because we don't have to think about race in those places but then after apartheid you had this kind of you have a similar exceptionalizing of south africa where there's this idea that south africa is a <laughs> is a, a case study for what happens when whiteness is allowed to fail look at how terrible it is now look at the aids look at the look at the crime look at the you know it used the to farmers. be beautiful it used to be this yeah you know there's, there's this idea and the, the the global far right uses this incessantly this idea that you know what the, that white people are under exceptional types of risk in southern africa and that we can see in south africa what happens when white people are no longer in charge there's zero historical knowledge about the extent of corruption under apartheid and how much of that was inherited by the new south african dispensation there's zero political knowledge of the fact that south africa went from a highly segregated de facto whites only socialist state to it being inserted into kind of a rampant mid 90s neoliberalism you know to the point where we now have a lot of we now have a lot of gmo seeds because when the governments were changing companies like monsanto kind of stormed in here going hey science progress and all these people who'd been freedom fighters two weeks before went great um you know this this country has been i'm not i'm not denying the fact that this country has been absolutely screwed by corruption but this country has also been absolutely screwed by a global capitalist order um there's a lot there's you know we can see this in the current vaccine rollout and you know yes the incompetence of the anc is a big issue but so is the fact that global vax, global farmers not selling us enough doses and when they are they're charging us more you know that's happening on the whole continent so South Africa, racist, quote unquote, like racist apartheid South Africa was this kind of weird, crazy outlying exception where whiteness made its workings too visible and had to be um, disciplined by global whiteness, which is deeply entwined with capitalism and made it very clear that this was not a good way to keep making money. And then post apartheid, whiteness has once again been exceptionalized as kind of idealized victim status, this thing that needs to be protected at all costs. Because if you look at what's happening in South Africa now, you'll see what you'll see the fate of Europe if we don't stop Muslim migration. I mean, it's mm-hmm. painfully unsubtle. I, I guess what also looms large in when they talk about South Africa is the idea they've come in to take your property. So property rights, which are which yeah. is the foundation of Western civilization, your property rights are in danger, right? So yeah, yeah. I mean, now there's talk of expropriation without compensation, which drives mm. everybody insane. But no, absolutely, there've been many, many. I mean, since the end of apartheid, there've been claims. People have been going, "Ah, oh, your your fancy safari resort is built on my ancestral land." And a lot of the people who've made, you know, of course, nothing is ever as simple as black and white. And I mean that in both ways. A lot of the people who've made a huge profit of all of this have been um, con- black historical conglomerations like the Buffalo King Nation, which historically was a, a tribal grouping, which is now insanely rich, unbelievably rich. And of course, that doesn't trickle down to your everyday guy on the street. But this is a body that now has access to vast, vast, vast amounts of land. 
I mean, there, you know, as in the States, you also get these kind of really, um, really unfair lending practices where it's harder for black people to buy houses. There is this, there is this constant tension between who owns what and who gets to own what. And a lot of that manifests itself in this call of give back the land, which has become very contentious and very controversial and is being used by kind of political firebrands to fire people up. But, you know, what do you do? What do you do with the land? Who do you give it to? And what do you do once you've got it? Like there, there, there have to be ways of doing some sort of reparation or some sort of historical redress that are more nuanced, more complicated and more long-term valuable than just going here, have a farm without mm-hmm. the expertise to run it or the capital to buy the equipment that you need. Or importantly, the incredible the decades, centuries even of incredibly cheap labor that you need to make land a going concern, which is why white people did so well in this country. They had de facto slavery. I'm, I'm, Nikki, I'm going to give her a mic drop. I'm going to give you a survivor. It's a survivor. Nikki, it's so, so sick. It's honestly like, I'm just sat here, like, my eyes just like wide open. Like, it's just so, it's so clear, but it's so complicated. And it's so, yeah. I think, I don't think it's necessarily coincidence that we haven't had that much um, discussion on the podcast about South Africa because it's so recent. Like all this stuff is so recent. Like it's so fresh still. I also think it's 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 so at the moment, especially the continent itself. It's very current. The pivot towards Africa by the global community is mad. So we obviously we spoke about before with China and the the uh, Bridge Road Initiative with China, but now with the G seven just went the G seven's focus on Africa with the Build Back Better is (laughs) it's it's it's, it's insane. Like they they want to start giving money and it's kind of like a a kind of colonial redux. So yeah. all these countries are trying to re reinvigorate old colonial links. So mm. uh, Germany with with Namibia, uh, France with its francophone countries, Belgium, Belgium, and even sorry. and and Britain. People been saying sorry. Yeah, people been saying sorry. People been sorry. Yeah. Yeah, the Germans probably yeah. said sorry, didn't they? Yeah. Well, they, they said they said sorry, and they said we're going to give you a billion pounds over thirty years. But then, yeah. isn't that billion pounds going to people? It's not. Uh, no, no, it's not going. But, isn't it? No, it's but, probably going into building things that will still be owned by the British. That's usually how yeah. rather linked, by the Germans. It's all linked to capitalism, still, isn't it? Yeah. But they gave a billion over thirty years. But they gave the car industry last year five billion in one year. So, you know, oh my car, god! So, but 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 the pivot, but the pivot towards Africa. And again, yeah. you're. I can hear people talking about South Africa and the colonial looks between Britain and the Commonwealth and South Africa, mm. and they're trying to reinvigorate those kind of bonds again. So it's quite interesting how the, the conversation around Africa right now and all the kind of anxieties around Africa are, are yeah. disappearing because that's the, the I don't know, I guess the front line now. But again, is this gonna is this gonna be is this gonna change, Nikki, because of what's happening with COVID? Like we've got like the the way the global north are hoarding vaccines, like yeah. the vaccine inequality we're seeing now. Like, is this this is probably gonna map onto the anxieties we're talking about in this episode, but also possibly causing a disjuncture between how the West connects with the mm. with the continent. Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, it's very hard to, I think, you know, one of the reasons that when, when this kind of outreach stuff starts happening, people get very excited about Kenya and Nigeria, mm. big economies with um, interesting tech sectors, you know, <laughs> the West loves that stuff. And they also, you know, they also get very excited about South Africa 
we don't necessarily have the same kind of economic booming going on, but we represent something very specific because we were white for so much longer and we have this remaining big white population and we're seen as kind of vaguely exceptional in Africa. Like we're African, but we're also not really African. And that, you know, that plays out in South Africa a lot as well. I think that's at least partly why, you know, xenophobic stuff keeps popping up again because we think we're somehow special and different. But what COVID's doing is it's, it's decimating our economy to such a massive extent we are at the moment, we're on 75% youth unemployment. And I was trying, my boyfriend and I have been trying to figure out what the, what the stats are that they use to get that. Like, it, does youth mean 18 to 25? Apparently it's up to 30. Mm-hmm. It's really, really insane. I mean, I'm su- really surprised that there's not kind of, you know, rioting in the streets. I'm surprised no one's trying to overthrow this government is, given those numbers. It's a massive elephant in the room, like global youth unemployment. But, no, but, but it's mad. But graduate is, unemployment as well. Yes. But that, that's the that's one of the fears from Europe, right? So the contagion, mm. the anxiety around youngest working age population in the world in the sub-Saharan Africa, right? So yeah. they they're thinking we don't want these people because it's politically unacceptable in Europe. So it's fortress Europe versus this anxiety around Africa again. Yeah. So you're going to export, is Africa exporting its people, its youth to the rest yeah. of the world? And that is a really good point. And so is this is this going to be an issue? I mean, I... it's going to be interesting to see in terms of thinking about Britain as a service, you say service economy? What do you say? It is, no, it's a, a post-service service economy. Service yeah, but... economy. In terms of thinking about Britain, right, one of the things we've got going on here, Nikki, and mm. listeners that are based in the UK will know this, and particularly listeners that are based in cities, there is a huge huge lack of um understaffing within the hospitality um sector oh because all the eu kids have gone home they've gone they've actually gone they've fled they've fled this fucking racist plague island honestly right so how what what is what is quote unquote global britain going to do about this are is global britain going to call on its south african links its indian right. to bring to bring like where who's going to serve them right, no, the fo- who's the- going to serve them in in the shards who's going to serve right, them? So how the- are they going to how would they do that considering how you know as i was saying at the start of this episode how lucky i was to just kind of swan in when the borders were a wee bit more porous mm-hmm. no one's got the money for this like i with with my degrees and my education or whatever, if I was trying to get into Britain now, I wouldn't earn enough money to make the cut. Mm-hmm. It's trying to make it all the time. Like, what are they going to do? So the, right. So the, the policy from the from the far right policy think tanks, they say right. So <laughs> they, they they argue right that yeah. migration is not a thing. So what they will do is cut public services to save more money. But then what? But then who? But this back to my point. Yeah. Who serves them in the shard? Don't care. Just what's there? What's theirs now? So what we have yeah. now, they're not looking to employ anyone else. But they like, like, quote unquote, good service. They like service. Yeah, no. They like lots of stuff. But also, I mean, this, but this is private industry, right? This isn't yeah. just the state. It's not yeah. just about services. Businesses, business is going to want a business. How the yeah. hell is business going to yeah. business if they won't let anyone in? This is honestly, Nikki, it's such an <laughs> elephant in the room, right? Because I've But then the worry, part. like the big worry is that what they start doing is they, they, they introduce a really punitive, really horrible visa regime where they allow people to come and do low paid manual labor for yeah. X amount of time and then they ship them back home, which is what a lot of the Gulf states do for this like construction workers. And it firstly, it's going to freak out the right anyway, because some of those people will slip through the cracks. But secondly, it's going to create a kind of 
underclass of semi-indentured non-white people who get shipped in from all over the world to do the toilet cleaning that Brits don't want to do and then get sent home with a little bit more money. I mean, that's what happens in Singapore. It's, it would be awful. This is, this is what, but this is what we've been saying on the show mm, from they, day they're one. Co- they're called we, that. Singapore 2.0. That's what I said, yeah, it's going to be a bit like Dubai. Tax, that's tax what haven, mm-hmm. no yeah. workers' rights. But what's, what's the key thing about Britain is what they keep forgetting is that it'll be, it'd be like Dubai or somewhere like that, but, but the Britain will have lacked the political influence that it always is used to. Have. Yeah. And yeah. that's and that's what kills it because they they try they still think themselves as part of the empire and having influence, but they'll have no influence. And Gary and Steve are going to have to deal with the fact that there are going to be <laughs> black and brown people. About there's going to be more about. There's more. Yeah. You've got rid of, you've got rid of your EU citizens. You've got rid of you said you didn't want yeah. them. So now you're going to get more of the people that you actually thought you were voting for to get rid of. Brilliant. But that Ghanaian nurse who's been living here for 30 years, who is married to a Ghanaian man who has a British Ghanaian child, if she wants to marry a Ghanaian man, how are you as the British government, if he's got enough money, going to refuse him marital rights? You cannot stop. But this is the issue. This is what we, this is what me, and, me, Tisa and George talk about all the time. What they've actually done with Brexit, just thinking, yeah. like, just thinking about immigration, you're gonna get more. You're gonna get more of a presence of the people that they pathologize both within yeah. their government and within the media. Well, yeah, you should have stuck get... with those nice French hippies. Yeah, that's this is what coming back to the, the com- conversations we've had about nationalism on the show before, um, particularly when we have Bali yeah. on the show. For those of us that have um, heritage um that is based in africa the caribbean the global south asia like that are visibly racialized in a certain way Mm -hmm. it's kind of the issues that are happening right now it's not it it does our circumstances do change but it's kind of more of the same it's kind of more of the same Mm -hmm. linking it back to like nikki's stuff when i about joburg when i what i think is quite interesting is london can use the example of joburg now right yeah it's a very Mm -hmm. cosmopolitan place and it's it's very kind of dynamic but you also have these kind of pockets of mad mad wealth with kind of mad poverty and you have like these big swathes and I think that you're going to have this similar thing in the UK in London in particular mm. you're yeah, going to have these, a, a huge immigrant population servicing a small rich elite and rich people are going to feel kind of prang when they're walking down the street when they, they're going to feel funny and out of place and there can be pockets where you have where, where people are well these borderings where these anxieties meet so you have places where white people can go or where immigrants go or Londoners can go and where immigrants yeah. are and it's going to be and they're very and I think London can learn a lot from the Joburg experience. And it's going to be the other way around where, where London was the, was the centre telling Joburg how to live. Or, but it's going to be read the other way where we can learn from Joburg and say, OK, this is how people map and live and exist in a city like that. Can we learn from this and, and navigate around London? I mean, the, the, my co-editor on this book, um, his chapter, which is about a Beyonce concert in Soweto that went terribly wrong. Mm. <laughs> um, he actually makes, I think he makes this argument towards the end. He says, basically, there's nothing particularly special about Joburg. It's just a, it's just a little bit of an outlier. It's just showing a little bit sooner than many other places what happens when too many services become privatized. Mm. Infrastructure starts to collapse under buckle under the weight of too many people. Extreme poverty and extreme wealth have to find ways of coexisting. The edges around those spaces get weirdly fetishized. This idea of the kind of global metropolis becomes really atomized and difficult to move through and mobility becomes a lot less smooth. And I mean, this is happening in London, you know? I mean, I know, because I was 
I think I told you guys when we were speaking before I was I was in I was in London for five months last year when I got trapped in the UK because the South African borders closed and there was a little bit of a pandemic going on and I got stuck in a pub <laughs> for five months in King's Cross it was great but I mean one of the things you know the way that we were we were exploring the city and it was great and we were using the city bikes and it was already lovely but then there are areas you can't go on those bikes there are parts of the city that you literally there are no bike lanes you yeah, cannot so rent any of these bikes and these are rich areas where wealthy people have managed to exert enough pressure to say that this very common mode of transport is not acceptable in our neighborhood i mean that's a joburg phenomenon so this stuff is happening i think everywhere like i'm from london i born and bred here there's always been changes like this afoot right but sometimes you're aware of it sometimes you're not but when you're from here you learn to navigate these things with, a, with an ease that that an outsider would think, oh, that's that they see it as quite of a big thing, but I don't have an anxiety about it. It's something that I just manage. Mm. And when, when you're from these places, you manage these anxieties in ways that it becomes second nature. So it's not a big thing that I'm there's bordering when I go to certain places because I, I just navigate it. I've always been yeah. bordered when I go places. It's not something that's new to me, it's not something that's alien to me. I understand it, I understand the people that are doing it to me, and I just navigate it. Sometimes it makes me angry. But most of the time, it's not even a thing. I, but your capacity to navigate it has something specifically to do with being an urban native in your city. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. If you're an I urban mean, native um, in my city, there would be parts mm, of the city mm, that you could not navigate. If you mm. are if you are a black person who's born in Johannesburg, there are parts of Joburg you just don't know and you can't go to and you don't feel secure in. And there are malls you wouldn't go into because the security guards are going to look at you funny. And if you are a white person born in Joburg, there are parts of the city you just wouldn't dare enter. So the, the kind of, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily this is the way that all cities are going, but as they get, as, as they get more and more atomized, as they get more and more unequal, those kind of, those senses of boundaries are going to become stronger and more powerful. People, people who are born in London now might not feel the same sense mm -hmm. of, they might not have the same confidence in their ability to navigate the entirety of the city because the borders might be more aggressive in the future as the rich get richer. So what is the antidote to the anxieties? So is, is something like cosmopolitanism something that an antidote to these anxieties of how we navigate this place or these spaces? I don't know if there is an antidote. I mean, I, I tend to think that anxiety is a symptom of capitalism. There isn't really much way to get away from it. We, we, feel, we feel anxious because we feel powerless and we feel powerless because in effect we are powerless because we live in a system that devalues human life. So we're not ever gonna, you know, as a species in our lifetime, we're not ever gonna suddenly just feel all right. Not to say that we all, you know, we all felt fine when we were pastoral, but I think where we are right now is, quite effectively stressful but in terms of how people live in cities and what we do in cities i think it's just really really important for those of us who live in these places to firstly to challenge ourselves so we force ourselves to leave the zones that we are the most comfortable in and go to other parts of our cities and see them just to remind ourselves that our worlds are not the entire the entirety of the world but secondly to and I say this to my students all the time, they always roll their eyeballs. I mean, I think engaged citizenship is very important. I think getting involved with local campaigns, cleaning things up, 
finding out what's going on. You know, if there's a polluted water source near you, is there something you can do about it? All of these tiny actions that we can take to make our cities more livable on a really small micro level can, you know, not only have an effect on the city, but they can also have an effect on the sense of ownership that we feel of the city. And I think part of the reason for the rise in urban anxiety is that so many of us feel like we're living within these large, all-consuming organisms that we don't have much say over and it does you know there is a lot to be said for the productive and progressive claiming of agency and for the kind of the power of small-scale collective work that's powerful <laughs> that's so powerful <laughs> nikki thank you so so much for joining us um today thank you so much we for have... having me i love this podcast <laughs> oh, we, <laughs> we love your scholarship like, it's, it's so inspiring right we like, absolutely love it nikki just before we finish plug, please plug your yeah. please plug your new book it's called risk anxiety and moral panic in south africa unless i can come up with a sexier title in the next month <laughs> and, and it's going it's press with manchester university press as part of a series actually that i'm running with a friend, Srila Roy, who has been on your Spotlight oh, series. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we love Srila. Oh, we're doing yeah. a, we're running a yeah, series yeah, yeah. with Manchester yeah. UP called Governing Intimacies in the Global South. And we are very interested in talking to people who might want to publish with us. So, you know, oh, if anyone's got yeah. any ideas about the intersection of governance <laughs> and intimacy, <laughs> <laughs> give us a shout. Oh, Nikki, thank you Nikki, so thank much you. for that. Thank you. thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And listeners, we've got the T's and C's coming up over on the Patreon now. Head over there and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 